Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The United States Agency for International Development, USAID, is the premier global development agency of the United States and one of the largest global development organizations in the world. As USAID goes, so goes global development. So many in the broader NGO and development community were pleasantly surprised to see that Joe Biden has tapped Samantha Power to lead the agency. Furthermore, unlike the Trump years, the USAID administrator will be part of the White House National Security Team, suggesting that the perspective of global development will be represented at the table when key U.S. foreign policy decisions are made. My guest today, Sarah Rose, is a policy fellow at the Center for Global Development, And in this conversation, we discuss what lies ahead for USAID during the Biden administration and under the leadership of Samantha Power. We kick off discussing some broad trends at USAID over the past several years before having a conversation about the kinds of global development priorities the new administration may pursue. I think you'll like this episode. Let me know what you think. Uh, as always, feel free to reach out to me. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I always love hearing from you. All right. Here is my conversation with Sarah Rose of the Center for Global Development. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, in the 15 years or so that I've been covering development issues, I can't recall a incoming administration announce their nominee for administrator of USAID before Inauguration Day. Do you remember this happening No, you know, you have to go back years um, to see an administrator that was in place this early on. In fact, uh, I think the last case that that happened was when there was an administrator that was even rolling over from the previous administrator. And that was a unique circumstance. And so, you know, I really do think it is a signal of the importance that the Biden-Harris administration is really placing on development to have uh, such a high level, um, uh, sort of impactful nominee in place, um, even before inauguration. I I really do think that is a signal of, of of the emphasis on 
emphasis on development. Yeah, I mean, not only is Samantha Power, you know, like a high profile person, but the fact that they announced this so early and the fact that the this position will have a seat on the National Security Council, to me is at least sort of significant of the uh, priority to which the incoming administration may place development issues. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the NSC position is a really key point too. Um, you know, it really it gives development this this co-equal voice at the table. And I think especially now when you have you know the COVID pandemic, which is going to be the number one issue really that um, uh, that this administration uh, as well as folks around the world will be addressing. Um, you know, in, in in the coming years, you know, this is very much squarely at the intersection of you know national security and development policy, um, and it will be really important for the development voice to have have that prominence there. So I, I think that a lot of development watchers are, are quite excited and certainly welcomed that uh, that indication that that development will have that seat at the table and the, the new NSC. So before we discuss what priorities and what the new administration may do in terms of global development and the role of USAID in US foreign policy. I want to kind of take a step back for listeners who are not quite in the weeds with USAID. Can you briefly take us through in broad strokes, some general trends that you've been seeing out of USAID, say for the last like 10 years or so? Sure, absolutely. So, of course, you know, USAID is is the predominant foreign aid agency of the United States government. It's not the only aid providing agency, but it is the major one. And so, it's it, what it does is really important in terms of sort of thinking, uh, you know, setting and implementing U.S. development policy. Um, you know, over the past decade or so, you know, that that takes us, you know, through sort of the end of the Obama administration, and then, of course, through the Trump administration as well. Um, and you know, you can look at a few things. Uh, that sort of point to, to particular sort of trends in development policy. Um, you know, under Obama in particular, you know, that administration was a bit slow, I think, to build a development agenda. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, it's really quite noteworthy that there is a USA nominee in place even before Biden's inauguration. Under the Obama administration, it, it was almost a year before USAID had political leadership. Yeah, I, I think so. I had Raj Shah, who was, who was Obama's USAID administrator on the show before. And I think I remember him telling me that it was just like a week or two after he was already in place that the Haiti earthquake happened. That was in January 2010. That's um, right. So that's about when he started was, you know, his first call with the White House was Haiti earthquake. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, I think, you know, under Obama, there were, uh, I, I think, some some things that were sort of noteworthy. Um, and it was coming off of, of the George W. Bush administration in which, uh, you know, that administration established really two big new uh, initiatives for development policy. That was PEPFAR, um, the president's emergency plan for uh, AIDS relief and and the Millennium Challenge Corporation or MCC. Um, Those were huge and they came with a lot of new money. Um, And so uh, one of the the key things was that, you know, Obama did maintain those two initiatives, but uh, but again, then his administration came right on the heels of, you know, the global financial crisis as well. So at this point, there just wasn't a lot of new money to be able to put into to new initiatives. And so, uh, you know, some of the initiatives that, that emerged under the Obama administration really didn't have that, um, you know, heaps of new money behind them the mm. way that PEPFAR and MCC did. But, you know, certainly that administration did advance um, some important new, new efforts, new initiatives, Feed the Future in particular, really put sort of agriculture back on the radar for development. Uh, Power Africa has was really important. That was another Obama era initiative, Obama era initiative, um, which is later codified by Congress and law, and that's something that you know has been continued since then as well. Um, 
You know, and under uh, the Obama administration, also there was, you know, a, a new focus on on climate change and climate policy. Uh, it was under that administration that the U.S. formally entered the Paris Climate Agreement, and and uh, the administration also signed an ex- or the excuse me, the president signed an executive order um, to really think about how uh, to get foreign aid agencies to really think about how to. Um, you know, uh, work climate policy into a lot of their their assistance programming, and so that was that was an emphasis as well. And one thing I also want to mention that was I think really important during again the Obama administration was that they really sought to you know reestablish USAID as sort of a policy evidence and evaluation center. And so you know they reestablished the the policy shop at USAID. That's the Bureau of Policy Planning and Learning. Gave the agency more control over its own budget. Um, you know, tried to reestablish a culture of actually evaluating. You know, what are their programs achieving? Uh, and so, so these were important things uh, to emerge as part of um, that administration. Um, but then, of course, over the last four years, we've had the Trump administration, and, and certainly, you know, development policy took quite a bit of a different turn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in many respects, you know, you could see that that the Trump administration was was rather unfriendly to development. I think you could say um, they sought to defund a lot of programs out of USAID, if I recall correctly. Well, that's exactly right. So, you know, the budget requests coming out of the Trump administration you know, had these deep blows to the aid budget. Um, we're talking sort of on the order of 20 or 30%, depending on the account, but, um, you know, just really massive cuts that were surprising. Of course, you know, Congress has the power of the purse and, and they repeatedly push back on this and, you know, ultimately funding mainly stayed level at around, you know, 35, 36, $37 billion in, in economic assistance over the years. Um, but that's right, the, the, the aid cuts were meaningful um, just in terms of signaling, uh, you know, how the administration viewed development policy, I think, as well. Is it fair to say, though, that that first administrator of USAID during the Trump administration, Mark Green, was just kind of like a someone you would expect any Republican might appoint to be administrator of USAID, you know, didn't create too many waves, um, kind of, you know, kept the agency moving along in the direction that it had been going previously, um, and is not someone who, you know, used USAID as a place to score partisan points. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, what's interesting about all of this is that, you know, you have, you know, the Trump administration doing things like withdrawing from international dialogues and collective action challenges and, you know, thinking about how to use aid as a transactional tool. And so sort of if you look at the big picture, there were some things that were, you know, more concerning for development objectives. But as you say, if you look sort of right at USAID and how it was managed and what it was doing, there was really quite a lot to like about that. And, you know, a lot of the credit goes to Mark Green, who is, you know, a real development professional, his career he spent in development, also in Congress, of course, and had a lot of connections there that he was able to leverage in his position at USAID administrator. And, you know, under under Administrator Green, USAID really managed to remain focused on development and, and they were able to lead a series of reforms that really sought to make the agency more effective. And again, this was under the umbrella of, of the journey to self-reliance, as they called it. And then he resigned in like, what, early 2020 and everything fell apart. You know, USAID was certainly in the news uh, and not for the right reasons um, in the in the last part of the Trump administration. I know there were some, you know, controversial sort of personnel issues that were certainly um, highlighted. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, like basically like all the news coming from USAID over the last year or so after Mark Green resigned was stemming from these kind of almost wacky personnel appointments uh, used to fill senior positions at USAID of Trump loyalists who, you know, had been with him from the campaign as opposed to anyone with uh, sort of any professional background in development. Yeah, exactly. Th- those certainly grabbed headlines. Um, they were uh, um, they were interesting, certainly. But um, at the same time, you know, I think you know the agency really did, or many at the agency did, continue to try to advance a lot of the the reform processes that were initiated under Mark Green's leadership, and that includes you know the the uh, procurement reform uh, processes that USAID uh, undertook, um, as well as you know the restructuring of the agency to sort of better align its its bureaucratic structures with with some of its development goals. You know, these are sort of long-term kinds of uh, kinds of shifts that were spearheaded under, under Mark Green, and, and they're certainly continued to be underway or continued to be underway, you know, at the end of the Trump administration. If and in, in when likely uh, Samantha Power is uh, confirmed as administrator of USAID, what would you expect her to prioritize? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, and I think the first order of business will, will um, pretty clearly be responding to, to the COVID pandemic. Um, again, there was a national security directive that came out on this at the end of January, um, you know, really focusing on, uh, you know, strengthening U.S. global leadership to, to help with the international COVID response. And, and I think that that's very clear that that's going to be a focal point of. And what would that look like in practice? So I think there are a couple of things. And so, you know, one of the obvious ones that I know that, you know, we in the United States are certainly focused on right now are things like vaccine distribution. Like, can we can we contain this epidemic, right? Or this pandemic, rather. Um, and, you know, even already the Biden administration has committed to joining COVAX. You know, COVAX is this multilateral initiative that um, really aims to speed uh, vaccine uh, developments, you know, build manufacturing capacity, um, and then ensure vaccine supply at a price that will ensure that, you know, low and lower middle income countries are able to access it, right? And this is, of course, critically important because this pandemic is not going to end until it is contained everywhere. We, this, 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 is a, this is something that has spread and continues to spread globally as, as we are all, all well aware. And so, you know, that will be particularly important. I think some of those, uh, you know, international efforts to try to, uh, you know, help with vaccine access, um, delivery, continued innovation around vaccines. And I think the U.S. Um, would seek to be a leader in that area. So you um, could foresee USAID having a role in that? Well, that's more of sort of an administration-wide kind of um, uh, of of priority. Um, certainly, uh, uh, Ambassador Power, with her development hat on at the at the NSC table, will be able to advance the development rationale for why that's a critical thing to do. But in terms of USAID specifically, um, sorry, let me back up for just a minute. Um, a lot of that is going to come from, sorry, a lot of the the, the increase in vaccine access will, will come from multilateral cha- channels that are really already set up to focus on this more quickly. That, that's a sort of, um, uh, these are being set up right now, uh, being implemented um, with, with a lot of international participation to try to do this in a more sort of efficient and effective and, and coordinated kind of way. Um, I think where USAID's role um, is really going to be strong is in dealing with some of these second order effects of the pandemic. Um, those are things like regenerating economic activity, um, trying to rebuild education systems and uh, 
you know, restore lost education outcomes after interruptions and disruptions to, to, to people, to children's education. Thinking about the governance angle to this and, and, and how the COVID pandemic has, you know, potentially raised opportunities for, um, you know, rises in authoritarianism or crackdowns on civil society, for instance. Um, but really, I think uh, the second order health effects of the COVID pandemic are going to be particularly important. And I say this because, you know, health has, you know, for a long time been such a huge portion of USAID's foreign assistance, right? I think it's something like 30% of all of USAID's economic assistance goes to health. It's something like 40% if you're talking about non-emergency response stuff. And so um, considering how big a piece of the pie health assistance is, I think USAID is going to be spending a lot of time thinking about how it can shore up those health services and outcomes that were really disrupted by the pandemic. Things like HIV, things like tuberculosis and basic childhood vaccinations, for instance. So basically like kind of almost starting over, not starting over, but at least sort of part of the recovery from COVID will also include these ancillary health effects that COVID has had, such as interrupting routine childhood vaccinations. Absolutely. Yes. And then of course, there's the question about global health security infrastructure. Like, what does this look like going forward? You know, this is something that was, that was raised, of course, you know, during the Trump administration as well. There were some ideas that were thrown out about, you know, how this should look bureaucratically. Um, the Biden administration is focusing on this. They've, they've reinstated the global health focus at the NSC. Um, Beth Cameron's going to be the senior director for global health security and biodefense. Um, she was at the NSC under the Obama administration as well. You know, they're looking at, you know, what does a what does sort of an enduring uh, financing mechanism look like for for improving sort of these bilateral and multilateral approaches to, to global health security? What could that look like? So I anticipate that that would be um, a really key focus, again, it, to the extent that, you know, they say that well, you shouldn't let, uh, you shouldn't waste the opportunity of a crisis. I'm, I'm muddling that phrase, certainly. But mm-hmm. um, obviously, this pandemic is, is, if we could leverage this as an opportunity to figure out how to prevent the next pandemic, um, that will be really important. And I think should be uh, and likely will be uh, front and center of this administration's focus. So Samantha Power is someone who is not of the development community, you know, does not have a background in development, you know, does have a background, however, in humanitarian affairs. And of course, you know, humanitarian response is one part of what uh, USAID does through the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. So it's, so it's, you know, it's one key part of what USAID does, but development issues are a whole separate, I think, basket and I'm wondering if there is any sort of consternation or concern in the development community that this new high-profile person coming to take the helm of USAID doesn't actually have that development background. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think it, it it does merit sort of reiteration that uh, that you know emergency response and humanitarian really makes up such a huge portion of what USAID actually does. That in, in many ways it's it's advantageous to have someone with that kind of background in place. Um, you know, I, I think a lot will rest too on, so no leader can contain all of the skills that's, that's necessary to run a massive global development organization. Um, and so I think, you know, what will end up being important is, you know, how do you fill in the other senior leadership roles at USAID? I think it's really encouraging to have such a high profile nominee in ambassador power, again, already in place, um, but I think what will be very helpful for USAID is to get, you know, those other senior roles in place as well that have the, the background and the skills that complement hers um, in order to sort of round out uh, the skills that, that are available to, to, to USAID as well. Um, 
So earlier you mentioned the growing um, the growing reliance on evidence-based policymaking at USAID and how it had become more and more a key feature of how USAID is designing policies. Uh, can you just kind of walk me through what the future of evidence-based policymaking might look like and why it is an important, you know, and why it's important to sort of focus on that when thinking through um, the future of USAID and what, you know, and, and how to make more effective development policy? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because I think that this is, you know, really one of the most important things to focus on. So obviously, again, the COVID pandemic is going to be first order of business. There's other things, you know, climate, thinking about fragile states, all of these things are important. But the fact is, is that to be able to sort of underpin your success at any of these things, any of these objectives that you might have, there needs to be, uh, you know, a better way of bringing, you know, evidence uh, to bear when you're thinking about programming and policymaking decisions. And so, you know, right now it's exceptionally important. You know, the magnitude of need of the need has really risen, you know, astronomically over the last year. And so it really has become imperative that, you know, our efforts actually yield results. Um, and not only that, you know, the pandemic has, you know, put fiscal pressure on, on U.S. budgets as well. And so I think that we could anticipate that aid budgets, you know, may be squeezed into the future. And so thinking about, you know, value for money, thinking about cost effectiveness is really now more important than ever. And so um, just going back a bit, I mentioned under the Obama administration, um, you know, under under then administrator Raj Shah, there was a big push to try to sort of reinstitute a culture of evaluation at USAID. And they established a new policy of evaluating programs and and set expectations for um, being able to understand, you know, what the results of of programs actually were. What what were you getting out of this? and so there was a lot of progress made. Again, the policy was 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 put into place. And, you know, they set up you know uh, units within the agency to be able to sort of spearhead evaluations and you know provide guidance about how to do this. They've trained people on why this is important. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's it, it stalled somewhat, right? This was not a, a major priority under the Trump administration. Um, and in, in the eval- analyses that have been done of of of, of USAID's evaluation practice to date, um, what you really find is that there have there has been a lot more evaluations, but many of them aren't very high quality. And in particular, there haven't been very many impact evaluations, which really get at sort of, you know, what was the actual attributable impact of this particular intervention financed by USAID in uh, achieving the outcome that we see. And so being able to understand that kind of thing much more will be extremely important going forward. Uh, you know, again, both for being able to um, to sort of understand the value for money that's being put in, as well as trying to get closer to um, being able to use that information and feed that information back into our own programming to, to be able to learn from it and, and, and develop better programming as a result. And I will just say too, it Can doesn't I- have to, sorry, go ahead. Well, look, can I ask you, can you just give an example to help listeners understand this of how that feedback loop sort of works in practice? Like, is there a good example of some program or some intervention financed by USAID that was informed through that research and evaluation mechanism that you described? Sure. Actually, you know, a, a great place to look is at uh, as Development Innovation Ventures, or DIV. Um, this is a small unit that has been um, previously in the, the Global Development Lab, um, which is which is 
being reorganized so, so the lab won't be a unit in and of itself. But um, what they do is that they sort of seek applications for interesting ideas for innovations about how to achieve particular development objectives. And then they you know, test a small pilot uh, and evaluate the results of that pilot. And then from there, if it, if it uh, demonstrates effectiveness, then they may scale it up. And so there have been a number of these uh, you know, innovations that have been tested and, and demonstrated to be successful um, that, that they have, been, that they have uh, been able to scale up and actually have a huge um, you know, uh, you know, you know, sort of cost-effective benefit. Um, for for these particular interventions. And one example of this is, uh, you know, looking at teaching at the right level, which was an education intervention. It was developed by, by the, an Indian NGO called Pratham to help build uh, math and reading skills for primary school students. And so, you know, rigorous evidence of, of this teaching at the right level approach, um, you know, really encouraged decisions to try to expand this approach to other contexts. Um, and then they won a, a grant from DIV to really support the scale up um, of, of this approach um, into other contexts, including, I think, in Zambia, uh, those adapted for that particular particular location there. In November, uh, Samantha Power wrote a long piece in, I think, Foreign Affairs magazine, you know, discussing in what priorities the incoming administration ought to pursue in foreign policy. And listed among those, surprising to me at least, was fighting corruption. Uh, what role would the USAID administrator have in helping to pursue like an anti-corruption agenda abroad? I mean, I know the US, USAID gives a lot of foreign development assistance and official development assistance, government to government. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that this, you know, this was an important signal of sort of this commitment to, to focusing on uh, governance in particular. I know that the Biden administration has also called for this, you know, global summit for democracy, you know, looking at things about corruption, human rights, countering authoritarianism, et cetera. Um, you know, absolutely. The, the USAID um, does finance a lot of democracy and governance types of programs around the world. Um, it hasn't been a huge component of, of USAID's portfolio overall. Um, mentioned earlier, really, the, the predominance of things like emergency response and health um, in USAID's overall budget. But certainly, democracy and governance programs you know, do play a part as well. Um, you know, one of the things that I think will be interesting here is that, you know, the, the, the Global Fragility Act uh, was passed about a year ago at this point. Um, and what the Global Fragility Act really does is tries to focus U.S. government efforts. Now, this is not just USAID, but also, you know, state, Department of Defense, you know, any agency that might be involved in, uh, in a response or in, in assistance to fragile states to really focus more on prevention of violence. And so for a long time, you know, the U.S. has been sort of uh, operating more in terms of a response to a conflict once it's already broken out. But this is really sort of retooling and, and refocusing the United States on prevention kinds of issues. And as part of that, the expectation is that they will um, very much engage with these governance kinds of questions that tend to be at the root of fragility. And so in many ways, you know, this Global Fragility Act, of course, it's, it's, it is fairly narrow, it will be implemented in a series of pilot countries, but it does open the door for thinking about how to integrate those governance questions in a more kind of, uh, you know, wholesale and integral way than they previously had been. Um, you know, one of the issues is, you know, certainly while 
USA does, uh, you know, has done a lot of this, you know, democracy and governance kinds of programming. A lot of that programming really is, you know, again, fairly small money, um, often focused on sort of, you know, technical fixes and not really focused on this sort of underlying systemic dynamics that really, again, you know, get at uh, what, um, you know, what constitutes the challenges of governance in a particular kind of country. And so I think having someone like Ambassador Power at the helm of USAID, who is really deeply focused on governance as a key issue, has certainly, you know, seen the results of, of you know, weak or malign governance in action around the world in her career. Um, to really be able to champion that and try to push forward what that might look like, especially in an interagency context, when USAID is going to have to work with the State Department and its diplomatic interests, as well as the Department of Defense and its security interests, to try to come up with what this kind of approach to governance might look like. Uh, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Sarah. And I should plug an episode of the podcast I did almost exactly a year ago, specifically about the Global Fragility Act, which was then only recently announced. So go back and uh, check that out in the archives. Let me know what you think. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.